On October 13, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a conference titled Race and Justice in the Age of Obama. This podcast is a recording of the panel titled Looking Forward, Race in America After Obama. Panelists included Charles Badger, Republican strategist and former JEB 2016 Director of Coalitions, Mary Frances Berry, Geraldine R. Segal, Professor of American Social Thought, History, and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, Clarissa Martinez de Castro, Deputy Vice President, Office of Research, Advocacy, and Legislation at the National Council of La Raza, and Ovid Roy, President, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and Editor at Forbes Opinion. Moderating this panel was Keith Boykin, Assistant Adjunct Professor of Political Science at Columbia University and CNN Commentator. Providing concluding remarks were the conference co-chairs, Khalil Gibran Mohammed, Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at Radcliffe Institute, and Leah wright Rigger, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. panel of the day. But before I do that, um, and, and before I turn it over to our, our next panel, our next great moderator, I just want to introduce um, someone to you guys um, who we're, we're going to have talk just for a couple of minutes, because I think it's important that we hear, our, um, hear from students here at the Kennedy School. So I just want to introduce you to Michael Huggins, who is right here. Michael is, um, well, I'm also, I'm biased because Michael is my research assistant and is, has been very, very active and played a critical role in making this conference um, come to fruition. But Michael is a second year master's student in public policy um, here at the Kennedy School. He's also a third year law student at the University of Washington School of Law. And uh, he's also co-chair of the Black Policy Conference. So with that, I'm just going to turn it over to Michael for a couple of minutes to uh, share some words of reflection. All right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's such an honor to, to, to be in the presence of, of all of you. Just hearing your thoughts and words on this discussion has been really empowering for me. In 2004, I sat earnestly watching the television um, when I saw then candidate for, for U.S. Senate um, Barack Obama um, give his amazing speech at the Democratic National Convention. Um, I was 15 years old, and I knew that 2008 was going to be my first presidential election. And it was really empowering to see a candidate, really, t and someone who looked like me, really talk about bridging the divide between red and blue states and creating the United States. And for me, it was also a, a really good moment to see someone who is actively in trying to engage young people. Um, I grew up in a community where young people were often discouraged from pursuing careers, uh, public service, or even pursuing their dreams. Um, I was often told that I was naive to even think about pursuing a career in public service. So to see someone on the television saying otherwise um, was quite inspirational for me. So fast forward to 2008, uh, it was incredible to... To, to see uh, the country come together and, and elect our first African-American president. Um, at the time, I was studying abroad. And, but having conversations with my, um, I did vote absentee, <laughs> just to let you know. <laughs> um, at the time, I was having conversations with my parents, and the historical significance of the event was not lost on me. Talking to my aunt, who had experienced Jim Crow um, 
Mississippi and had spent much of her early years in elementary school and in that state, it was really empowering to hear her talk about seeing a black man elected. She talked about, you know, her chest sticking sticking out, you know, she just had so much pride in our country. The fact that my that I'm a descendant of slaves, the fact that I'm a descendant of folks who had grew up in Jim Crow, um, it was really empowering to see that. Well, it's been eight years, um, and now I'm I'm twenty eight, so it's been almost it's been a little over 13 years since I saw that initial speech um, when I was 15. And uh, we're at a crossroads where there's a lot of problems that have sort of come up in, in society. This whole idea of a post-racial society we all realize is truly a farce. Um, but how do we overcome that? How do we move beyond this sort of rhetoric of hope and change um, into action and results? How do we encourage a Democratic Party, which I think was mentioned before, um, which often tries to seek the votes of young uh, black individuals, yet does nothing to improve their status in the, in the community? Um, how can we continue to support a system, as uh, Professor Thompson has uh, had talked about, that continues to survey us, to survey our own bodies and our own community using uh, data-driven policing that is often intrusive in our lives? So 13 years since 2004, my reflection is we need a president, we need a leader, we need community leaders, we need communities to come together to turn the rhetoric of hope and change into results and action. And I think as a black millennial, someone who's really interesting, interested in seeing our country move forward in a positive direction where we don't go back to the past. I, my first president that I ever voted for was Barack Obama. That's the only president I've ever voted for. Um, and I really want this country to move forward in a way that improves everyone's lives. Um, and I think we need to start moving beyond the rhetoric of hope and change, really turning our desire to to, to change the world and into real, into real results for our community. And so um, I would encourage all of you to connect with your communities, connect with where you're coming from, connect to your churches, wherever you're from, um, so we can have this discussion. I also want to put a plug in for the Black Policy Conference, um, which uh, will be held in the first weekend of April, the second weekend of April, April 7th through 9th. Um, it's going to be a powerful conference, and we welcome all of you to come back and and participate in the discussion, this, the discussion that we will um, that we will have on race in in America. So, thank you. So thank you very much for that, Michael. Um, so now I have the pleasure of introducing the moderator for our next and final panel. Keith Boykin is a New York Times bestselling author, assistant adjunct professor of political science at Columbia University, a TV commentator, journalist, actor, and public speaker. Um, each of Keith's four books has been nominated for a Lambda Literary Award, including his most recent book, For Colored Boys Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Still Not Enough. It also won the American Library Association Stonewall Award for nonfiction in 2013. 
Educated at Dartmouth and Harvard, Keith attended law school with President Barack Obama and served in the White House as a special assistant to President Bill Clinton, where he was once the, uh, the highest-ranking openly gay person in the Clinton White House. He also helped organize and participated in the nation's first-ever meeting between a sitting president and leaders of the LGBT community. Keith has been actively involved in progressive causes since he first worked on his uh, uh, first congressional campaign while a student in high school. He's a veteran of six political campaigns, including two presidential campaigns, and was named one of the top instructors when he taught political science at American University in Washington. Keith is also currently a CNBC contributor, an MSNBC contributor, and a BET columnist. No, there's, there's a lot here. You don't um, have to read this, though. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. One more thing that I will say about Keith, because I think it's important. He's the founder and first board president of the National Black Justice Coalition. And he's spoken to audiences large and small all across the world. He delivered a landmark speech to 200,000 people at the Millennium March on Washington and gave a stirring speech about the AIDS epidemic in front of 40,000 people in Chicago's Soldier Field in July 2006. So with that, I'm <laughs> going to turn it over to Keith as we jumpstart our next panel. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. I was definitely not expecting that. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to discuss race in America after Obama for our final panel discussion. And we're going to do this a little bit differently. I think you've had a chance to meet almost all the panelists here today before. So I'm going to throw out some questions to them and I'm going to try to move along uh, as quickly as we can, try to have answers uh, that are uh, concise uh, and allow for opportunity for a conversation with the, with the audience here as well. So I want to begin, I'm not going to read everyone's bios, by the way, I'm just going to read the brief synopsis here. I'm going to begin with Mary Frances Berry, Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought History and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, Mary Frances Berry, we have 100 days left now in President Obama's administration. After that time, we will have either a President Trump or a President Clinton. Uh, the question that this panel is focused on is, what should be the agenda for that next president in terms of issues of race and social justice? Well, first, you have to read my entire bio, including all 12 of my books. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get your microphone working. Okay, and then after my microphone is working, then you can read my entire right. bio. Okay. Just right. as yours was read. And then you can list all 12 of my books, too. And then after you do that, I'll answer the question. Uh, but, uh, but seriously, when Michael Huggins was uh, talking, I was thinking it made me sad what he said because he was so hopeful. And uh, one of the books I read, and I'm not going to tell you all 12 of them, which was one called Five Dollars and a Pork Chop Sandwich, uh, voter Vote Buying and the Corruption of American Democracy, which I published last year and all my Democratic Party friends said I shouldn't have published, is about people who say that they have been waiting for politicians to do what they say they're going to do <laughs> when they run for election and come around each year when they're generating turnout for every election, both state and local and national. We're just talking about national and make all these promises to them. And then there's one old lady down in Louisiana, Miss Williams said, she's 90-something now, 
They never do what they say they're going to do. They come around here and tell you they're going to do this and do that, put a roof on the school and this and that, and they never, ever do what they say they're going to do. And some of them don't even try to do what they say they're going to do. But at least every year when they take me down to vote, they bring me back after they tell me to vote certain numbers, and they give me $5 and a pork chop sandwich <laughs> and a cold drink at the daiquiri shop. So at least I know I'm going to get that if I don't get anything else. Uh, so she's lost all hope. Now, what I think Obama has, uh, and I have to explain, as I do in the book, what you can do so that you, don't, you can get something done. I think that uh, protest is an essential ingredient of politics. I have written that someplace, too. And I think that when we focus just on politics and what can happen after Obama and so on, and what can happen with Clinton, uh, if we are not prepared to bring pressure to bear, and all we are prepared to do is to recite that Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand, and then we don't demand, <laughs> then nothing will happen. Now, what Obama has left is more polarization than we've had in this country in a long time. And we, in my view, he's, whoever comes after him is going to have to try to overcome that polarization in order to get some policy done. And the reason why it has happened is not just him, but he has not been able to figure out a way to do what Michael said about the red states, blue states, and all that stuff that everybody thought was so hopeful. And it was beautiful when he said it, and we like it. But all this polarization, Obama has been very effective at trying to balance some issues of race, like police shootings and the role of the police. He has been less effective, in my view, in trying to balance other issues like immigration and LBGTQ issues because I, my position is I favor the position he takes. That is my point. My point is that all of those disaffected people, the deplorables who are out there still, uh, will remain disaffected because the way they feel they have been treated is that we don't even want to hear what you've got to say. <laughs> because we don't want to kind of try to think, is there some way to discuss what you want to say? You people are just, you know, outside the realm of discussion, and we don't want to have anything to do with you. So to heck with you. When you do that to people, whether it's personally or whether it's in terms of policy, all you do is harden positions with people. You don't have to agree with them, but you can at least say, you know, you may have a point about X, but hey, let's talk about why. So polarization is going to be the main problem. The issues that are to be dealt with are clear. Obamacare needs to be fixed. It's got to be fixed if it's going to survive. And that's going to require less polarization. Uh, immigration, if we're going to get reform, that's got to be fixed. And that's going to require less polarization and some middle way or some way to make people feel at least that they are being accommodated. Things like refugee policy, which we didn't discuss this morning. Mm -hmm. There has to be some kind of uh, middle way. We don't want terrorism, but at the same time, we're generous people and we want to take people in who need it, all that. Police issues, black people are just not going to, young people especially, stand aside and see these continued shootings and people getting killed and all this stuff without doing anything. And I'm proud of them because I've been trying to pass the baton for 30 years. And maybe now I found somebody I can pass it to. 
But I think that what he's left to his uh, successor is uh, capitalism is intact, but you still got all this inequality. But they probably teach here at the Kennedy School that capitalism requires inequality. Uh, that's part of the definition. So the point is how much inequality and what can we do about it? So he's left that, but he's left a good example, too, of how you behave in the presidency personally so that you can look like somebody who should be in the office. And if anyone, black or Latino or whatever, comes along again and wants to be president, people won't say, oh, we can never have anybody like that be president. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mary. Let me just move on to Charles Badger, who is a Republican strategist and former Jeb 2016 director of coalitions. Uh, Charles, you've heard now from Mary Frances Berry uh, four items on the agenda that she put out there. Um, she mentioned fixing Obamacare. She mentioned immigration, refugee policy, and policing. Uh, would you agree with those issues? And what approach would you like to see the next president uh, take on those issues? And what other issues would you like to add to that agenda? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with a number of them. Obviously, on the refugee policy, um, there is uh, a humanitarian crisis going on in Syria, the likes of which, you know, the United States hasn't seen in quite a long time, uh, possibly since uh, Milosevic uh, and Rwanda. So, you know, obviously there's a situation there, and, you know, we have the capacity to take in folks, and most, you know, Western liberal democracies are taking folks, to say nothing of the neighbors in the region. Uh, are taking in lots of folks. So, so obviously we got to get refugee policy right. Uh, you know, healthcare is a delicate balance. Um, you know, Dr. Barry's correct, obviously, that there's a huge political polarization going on there that's going to make it very difficult to get anything done. Um, the um, President Obama, and if his successor is, uh, is a President Clinton, as I believe it will be, uh, will have to figure out how to make fixes. But of course, Republicans in Congress don't want to sort of make fixes without revealing the whole thing, which I think is a misguided position. To your final point, so, you know, largely, obviously, all the issues that Dr. Barry brought up are, are clearly big agenda items. Last point, Keith, the one I would, issue, one I would add to is I'd like to talk about poverty. And I think that we uh, haven't talked a lot or enough about policy in this country or during this 2016 campaign. I mean, neither candidate, frankly, and unfortunately. And, uh, you know, one of the issues that doesn't get you know, very much discussion at the national level is issues of, of homelessness, for example, of, of cost of living, affordability of our cities uh, and where folks live. Uh, you know, back in the 70s, uh, Mitt Romney's father, George Romney, when he was Nixon's HUD secretary, had a big fight with Nixon about, look, let's use, as Nicole Hanna wrote an article, I think this year or last, about Romney had this, frankly, I think, pretty visionary idea of using federal dollars as a, quote, choke point to get local municipalities, states, and cities to make progress toward racial desegregation in housing and to roll back exclusionary zoning, for example, policies uh, and the like. And you have a variety of uh, you know, public policy challenges by way of local ordinances and municipal policies around uh, limiting the housing stock, uh, around limiting height of buildings, uh, all sorts <coughs> of, you run into all these NIMBY, not in my backyard issues uh, around when you want to diversify, add economic diversity to a neighborhood. There's a large body of social science research coming out of the last 20 years at least about poverty as its own sort of issue, but of course your own uh, Robert Putnam here, as well as others with our kids, have talked about uh, poverty being its own sort of problem, but an added issue, uh, really a force multiplier, is the concentration of poverty. And how do you break up concentrations of poverty? 
Uh, New Jersey has had an interesting his history here. You know, I encourage folks to look at the example of Mount Laurel, uh, where they were very intentional about how do we uh, create economic diversity of a neighborhood, and that that benefits everybody there. Uh, and there are ways to use uh, the leverage of federal policy and grants uh, to lean on states and municipalities to bring about these sorts of things, but also it's about organizing at the local level uh, cities and states to help, you know, every major city is, has a homelessness problem. Every major city has an issue of gentrification, uh, folks being pushed out, both people of color and low-income folks, not just poor-income folks, but the working poor, right? You know, every sort of folks, person in the service sector industry in every major city in America increasingly being pushed further and further and further out because the cities are unaffordable. And um, there are all sorts of ways in which the federal government can be involved in this. Uh, last thing I'll say, one example of that is HUD, uh, for a number of years now, has been doing this idea of mobility vouchers and to deal with this issues of concentration of poverty. Uh, how do we sort of take folk, break up those concentrations by moving folks out uh, into neighborhoods with a different per capita income, for example, where the schools are better, where the crime rates are different? And when you sort of break up these things and, you, and, and it becomes an economic benefit for everybody, up and down the income scale, because you get the social effects, whether we're talking about schools, whether we're talking about parks, we're talking about neighborhoods and shared resources. Uh, when folks live in a neighborhood and have to share resources uh, with folks who don't look like them, who come from different backgrounds than them, who you know have a different income, you get all sorts of uh, uh, lower-income folks who become having access to networks that they otherwise did not have, resources where we're talking about libraries or jobs, closer to jobs, transportation resources. Um, so, I, you know, that's the major area of poverty that I'd like to see. Uh, I think it's been pretty unaddressed, underaddressed in the last okay. long time, okay. and it's a big, fruitful area that if a president wanted to tackle that they could and should. Okay. Thank you very much, Charles. Um, Ovik Roy is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and editor of Forbes Opinion. I'm told it's pronounced Ovik, correct? Okay. Uh, so people don't have to look at me wondering why I seem to be mispronouncing the name. I want to find out from you. We've had now six items put up on the agenda, four from Mary Frances Berry, two from Charles Badger. Uh, do you agree with that list, too? What would you add to the agenda, and uh, how would you approach it for the next president? Well, first of all, I just want to say, since I didn't say this last night, I want to thank Aaliyah and Khalil on the Ash Center for having me uh, at this conference. It's been really wonderful to learn from everybody here and also the attendees. You know, I, I think we can talk a lot about the policy agenda, and I think there have been, a, I think, I, I would agree with almost everything that's been said on that front. I would actually like to take it a step above that, though, uh, because we can, you know, we can all put our heads together. We're all smart people and come up with lots of great policy initiatives that we would like to see the next president sign and the next Congress pass. But none of that matters unless there's actual broad public support for those initiatives that allows you to get through the House of Representatives 60 votes in the United States Senate and the president to sign it. Um, and so to me, the biggest problem, the biggest hurdle we have to overcome is not that we don't have ideas. Uh, to, to address these problems. There, there is a degree to which we need better ideas than the ideas of the past. I do think that's true, uh, particularly when it comes to addressing poverty. I think um, simple redistribution has not worked. We have to actually do a better job of making sure that we can find jobs for people. We need to improve, economically improve communities. Um, and and, and we've got to do a lot again around criminal justice to make sure that people aren't taken out of their communities. But the bigger problem, the macro problem to me is segregation. And I don't just mean segregation in the sense of black and white, you know, the segregation of the past. I mean in the economic and social science sense of the term segregation. The fact that ideologically where conservatives and liberals live are completely segregated from each other. 
the fact that you have these rural communities that are more, much more homogenous and you have these urban communities and suburban communities that are more diverse and that leads to very different cultural outlooks. Um, the fact that, again, partisan affiliations are so uh, segregated. The fact that we have more and more people, wealthy and poor people, are living in very diff segregated uh, areas. College-educated individuals and non-college-educated individuals are geographically segregated from each other. And that has led to basically two different countries uh, living kind of simultaneously within each other and interspersed with each other and intercalated with each other uh, in ways that have I think that's the dominant reason we have the polarization that we have in America. The fact that we were talking about this a little bit again throughout the day and also last night that you know one of the big problems on say criminal justice is not that the ideas aren't good. The ideas make perfect sense, right? It's common sense. The challenge is that you have a large group of people out there who live in communities where there's like, hey, I've never had a bad inter interaction with the police. This whole thing is made up. This doesn't make any sense. This isn't my experience. It's it's all politically correct exaggeration. There's a lack of empathy uh, that you can accuse them of. In some cases, you can accuse them of racism or just not wanting uh, a, a blacks to do better. But I think the biggest problem isn't, isn't that evil intent. I think the biggest problem is that you have people who just don't know anyone who has that experience. And they, they just don't have that ability to empathize and relate to it because they've, they've just, it's not part of their life. And vice versa, by the way. I think there are a lot of people in, uh, in the urban intelligentsia who have no sense of what it's like to struggle in a West Virginia coal mine or on a farm in Kansas. Um, and, and the people who live in those communities feel like um, you know, people on television ha and people in Hollywood have no sense of how they live and the struggles they face. They're told that they're privileged, that they have white privilege. And they look around and say, what, what privilege do you see here in, in my community? I don't see any. And that's a part of the challenge, too. And so uh, a big part of what I'm trying to do with this, with this new think tank, uh, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which is abbreviated F-R-E-O-P-P, freeop.org, uh, free if you want to check out our stuff over time, one thing I want to do, and I've been talking to some people around here about this, is to really build a new ecosystem on the right that tries to build common ground uh, with progressives and people in the center on issues that we all care about. I think that's been such a big challenge for both sides of the fence, is to actually create these mechanisms where we're learning from each other. One thing that I've personally benefited so much from is I, I spent a lot of time on MSNBC and uh, as one of their token conservatives, I guess, uh, kind of <laughs> like uh, sometimes I'm uh, in, in these uh, environments. But the advantage of that for me has been tremendous because it's allowed me to learn a lot about the thoughtful people who are, are bringing up issues of real gravity on the left that, that, that the right isn't really talking about. And I've learned from that and brought some of those concerns and issues and ideas to the right, and others have too. Um, and so a big part of, in general, and I, I, you know, to, to, to again continue this macro theme, that I'm trying to do with this new think tank is to create and, and to assemble the ecosystem of institutions out there that are liberty-minded, that are doing this kind of work, that are about social mobility and economic mobility and poverty and addressing the historical legacy of, of slavery and segregation and trying to bring those groups together to, to build a new conservative movement that really is, a, is, is not merely stating that it's about opportunity for all, but actually executing on that. Thank you, Ovik. Uh, I want to follow up with you on that, but right, not right now because I want to go to Clarissa, but I'll just interject that um, I had an experience as a token liberal on Fox News for some years, and I did not quite have the same uh, revelatory uh, results <laughs> as you did, but we'll move on here. Uh, Clarissa, uh, 
Clarissa Martinez de Castro, Deputy Vice President, Office of Research, Advocacy, and Legislation of National Council of La Raza. And Clarissa, we've heard now three different points of view. I'd like you to add your point of view and perspective. Just trying to get to this first question out of the way, and then we're going to start into a more of a dialogue of what issues would you like to see on the agenda that haven't been mentioned, or what do you want to second on what other people have already said? So on the policy agenda, I think mostly is seconding and with the acknowledgement that we are very much focused on domestic policy, um, not because foreign policy is not important, but that's what we've been focused on here. I think that, you know, we, we really need a serious policy intervention on jobs. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, one that really is targeted to the communities that need those jobs um, more than than anywhere else. And, and I think that's going to cover a number of different communities, but it definitely needs to be targeted and needs to be real. Criminal justice reform, which for me is in a broader perspective, also includes policing and um, immigration, immigration reform, not just because it's important as immigration policy, but it, because it's having dire impact on the civil rights of really any community who is deemed not to look American, whatever the notion of looking American is, um, which has definitely not caught up with what American is these days. But I do want to go to the point you made, because I think that uh, those are the policy priorities. Um, and while who gets elected in November matters a great deal. The reality is that regardless of who gets elected, uh, you know, whether it's the Democratic aisle or the Republican aisle, we need a cleanup on aisle three, right? And that is civil society. I, I totally agree that part of what we're seeing right now is we need to figure out how we're going to strengthen our civil society to up the game on accountability and the in, in delivering. Right. Um, folks have talked about how politicians come around when they're up for election and you don't see them again. And the reality is that the only people who win on election day are the candidate who has the more votes. In order for the communities to win and for the country to win, we need to be there the day after and the day after to hold them accountable, but also to have their back when they try to stretch themselves to work with the other side, whoever the other side is, depending on which side you are, uh, because without the ability to work towards agreement, there is no governing. And the reality is that we're in a state of politics where agreement has, also be has almost become equivalent with treason. And so there's no upside for many of, pe of our people who are actually elected to govern to actually do that, right? And to try to find the space in which they can deliberate and try to get to something. Now, we need all of us to pressure on the outside so that those agreements do capture the aspirations of the vast majority of Americans. But the reality is that we as civil society are not necessarily rewarding problem solving. And I think that that is a big call to action for all of us in how we engage that. And I do agree with you that uh, segregation, spatial, and in all its forms, what it tends to feed is a lack of exposure to each other. And not that exposure alone leads to empathy, but it is the opening to at least understand, even if you don't agree, and in, in a requirement in some ways or conducive to reignite the problem-solving approach in, in, in our communities. I think that the, the opportunity is there. It's not an easy task, but I think that's 
the next thing that we have to look at in terms of a civil society. And that's what I would like us to see. What steps, big and small, can we commit to take in our own communities where our own neighbors and, and the people that are around us so that we pull back from simply thinking in terms of what, this, this, what did this president do or didn't do? Or why are politicians so messed up, right? Because in some ways, the reality is that those elected officials are a reflection of us. Um, and we need to be more active in the process of doing that. So I'm sure we'll talk about redistricting and other things that are part of the systemic problem with distilling crazy and lack of agreement in the approach people have which often result in having kamikaze pilots instead of legislators, right, who are happier blowing things up than actually finding a way forward. Thank you, Clarissa. I'm glad you mentioned redistricting because it's sort of a segue to sort of the next question I want to get in, and whoever wants to answer this is okay. We don't have to go through every single person. Uh, but this whole issue I've heard over and over throughout today's panelists about uh, what the limitations are of the presidency. Well, the president can't do this because the Congress is against this, or the president can't do this because the state and local governments are, are responsible for this. At what point do we start to revisit or reconsider the whole concept of federalism itself? At what point do we start to reconsider the possibility of constitutional amendments to change the structure of government itself so that we don't have these, these debates where we can only argue on the margins, that we start to change what actually can be accomplished by any president or any leader or any activist movement? Is that a possibility? Well, I'd answer the question this way. Um, the idea of state and local autonomy has a lot of stigma on the left because of segregation in the South, but if we're somehow able to transcend that historical legacy of state and local uh, government and autonomy, it's actually much more accountable to citizens, right? If, if what you, it's a lot easier for a community to try to change what's happening at the local level than to try to win a presidential election, get 60 senators, and get Congress to do something. And, and, and actually, one thing about the, the conservative movement, because it has been more ideologically friendly to the idea of state and local autonomy, there are now state and local think tanks that are uh, conservative in every state that spend a lot of time trying to generate policy ideas uh, around state and local reforms. You know, I mentioned yesterday some of the stuff around Missouri and how to change the way police departments are budgeted in Missouri. In, and we were talking in the break about the Texas Public Policy Foundation in Austin, uh, which uh, has, has a whole program called the, the Right on Crime Initiative, which is about state and local-based criminal justice reform. And, and this is an area that the, the left, the progressive movement, has neglected. There aren't state-based and local-based progressive uh, think tanks to the same degree or uh, ideological movements to the same degree. It's more, it's more around particular issues, it's more around you know, uh, grassroots stuff, but in terms of the policy engines, uh, it's not so much there. And, and I think if there's more emphasis placed on that, we wouldn't, we wouldn't invest all our hopes in a president and then get disappointed by the president because we get a lot more done at the local level. Now, see, you look like you want to say something, Mary Frances Berry. Well, I'm trying to decide whether uh, or not to say something that I know will be unpopular. And I Hasn't was, stopped and you I all was day. Deciding, <laughs> and Bring I, it. And I was thinking that maybe I should just stop and not do oh. it anymore. But I thought long and hard about what you said about federalism. Federalism is like judicial activism. When the national government does something you like 
and you don't like what the states did, you would love to just not have federalism, not have the states have any power in that area, as my friend says on LBGTQ issues, one of my friends. Why do the states get to say, you know, why do we have to fight with them? Why don't we just get a federal? But when the federal government does, national government does something you don't like, then you are happy that in your state constitution, be it Massachusetts, which is always way ahead, or California, or someplace, that you still have a degree of autonomy to shape what you in Massachusetts want to do. So it depends on whose ox is gored. The founding fathers, you know, and I know they're dead white men, uh, <laughs> the founding fathers who put this jerry-rigged thing, and I teach about this, so that's another problem I have talking about it, jerry-rigged thing together, uh, knew that it wasn't perfect but that there was a certain balance. And throughout our history, we've shifted from this. Now, a lot of people think, for example, that we have a national right to vote. I've run into that in a lot of studies that I've done over the years. And they think, and they, when some issue comes up and the state passes something, they get mad and say, well, well, the national government is in charge of our voting. No, they're not. I mean, the Constitution gives that to the states, and then the, uh, we only can come in in the federal government if there's some discrimination. Uh, under the Constitution, 14th Amendment. Now that's good, as to say, when your state wants to do something. I, but I would shudder to have someone call a constitutional convention. What in the world do you think would happen if in the polarized situation that we live in in this country right now, somehow Congress got itself together and started, or the states demanded, a constitutional convention to rewrite the whole Constitution. Now, there are people who think that if Trump got elected, we'd be slaves. <laughs> <laughs> if we had a constitutional convention, I mean, I don't know, depending on who did what to whom, all kinds of things uh, could happen. So I don't think that we're not going to have one, that's number one, because it's, they made it hard to change the Constitution and hard to have have a constitutional convention by design. But I think federalism on balance, despite over the years the ups and downs, leaves some states as laboratories to engage in often progressive politics that you wouldn't be able to do if you just depended on the national government. And I would say instead of doing that, let's get rid of cable TV and campaign finance and money and politics. How's that? That's fine. Okay. Um, Can I suggest sure. something on this? They don't um, like it. Yeah, <laughs> I, su I support campaign finance and um, reform. I, well, I support complete. I, I support complete <laughs> public financing. I think, okay. frankly, that's what we are. I think we ought to go into a complete public financing system. My and my brothers. On, on your question, though, Keith, uh, I, I would like to maybe perhaps subversively blow up this whole concept of federalism. What there's a there's a South African concept. Mandela and Tutu were both quite fond of Ubuntu which one of the translations is I am because you are. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that we can use a much greater sense of that in our politics, and it's particularly relevant on this federalism question. What amused me on the Obamacare case, the first one that went to the Supreme Court and the conservatives got so mad with Roberts over because he ruled, uh, upheld the law, uh, was not the mandate question, which ginned up all the ink in the press and everyone paid attention to, but there was a second, much lower press uh, question of part of that case, which was the meta Medicare Medicaid expansion. Medicaid Medicaid expansion. expansion. Right. And then there's, there's this whole uh, body of law out of the Supreme Court about the federal government and its programming conscript, conscripting the states uh, to essentially sort of be an agent of the state. And that was essentially what the legal question turned on on the Medicaid expansion with the Obamacare case. The absurdity of that is I've worked in state governments, and I can tell you, like, if you've ever worked in a state government, you will, uh, <laughs> the absurdity of that question in the context of that case is 
probably 70, 80, 90 percent of state agencies are composed of administering federal programs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm I mean, the federal HUD administers Section 8 through locals, <laughs> administers it through state governments, through local governments, and through nonprofits. That is just a fact, right? Uh, there is not enough staff in HUD in Washington or in their satellite offices all across the country to administer even just that one federal program of Section 8. And so the idea that of, of Medicaid, that this idea that we're conscripting states, like <laughs> the full scale of federal programming that quote unquote conscripts the states, if we're going to use that word and that sort of negative connotation on it, uh, it, it is a huge, is a huge scale. When we want to, you know, as I said, with the Romney thing, it was using federal dollars and federal grants as a choke point to lean on states as a point of leverage to get them to do things. Last point I'll make on this is also, this is why one of the reasons why progress is so slow in criminal justice reform, particularly around declassifying marijuana, uh, the schedule, is doctors are afraid of, right, you know, their ability to write prescriptions, uh, it, it becomes, it, it, FDA leans on them, right? And so, you know, one of the reasons why doctors are afraid uh, of writing prescriptions uh, is they're afraid of uh, FDA leaning on them uh, and, and getting in trouble with their ability to write prescriptions. And so there are also, we talk about this interplay between the federal and state governments. I mean, you know, <laughs> the extent to which states have this vast, I think we overrate the extent to which states have this vast autonomy now. But they have <laughs> the right not to do it. In right. most federal programs, if you don't want to take the money, well, yeah, but, then you have but, the right not to do it. And effectively, as a state, that means if you don't take the highway funding, you're not going to have yeah, a transportation department. But if you department. don't want to do something, <laughs> so you're take you don't money. have to take Medicaid expansion. That's well, why as, those as states didn't expand. As much as I enjoy this dialogue, I really want to focus on, on the question of what happens next. And, and, the, and the next part of this question I want to get to is a political question, explicitly political question. Uh, Professor Michael Eric Dyson has argued in, I believe, the New Republic last year, uh, earlier this year, was it, that um, Hillary Clinton would actually be more effective in terms of race issues or social justice issues or even criminal justice issues than a President Barack Obama would be because she is a white woman. Uh, as opposed to a black man. Uh, I wonder what you, anyone who'd like to answer that or tackle that question would respond to Professor Dyson about that. Do you think that a white woman or a white person in general, even a pre President Trump perhaps, if he were so inclined, would be more capable of, of achieving sort of the African-American civil rights or, or social policy agenda than uh, black President Obama has been? Well, a, a President Trump certainly could be effective in criminal justice reform because it would be like a Nixon going to China moment where he's, he's built up this whole a campaign on blue lives matter and, you know, lock her up and things like that. So if he flipped and went the other way, I, that would be a, 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 certainly a powerful gesture. With the case of Hillary Clinton, I think pr President Obama could have, could have been more effective on criminal justice reform. He, I think the one thing I would say in, in that case is that he, I think he spoke very eloquently about the issue. I don't want issue. so much focus on but, what the yeah, past was, but, but on the future. I'm, go, I'm going to. Okay. So, but the, 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 one of the problems with President Obama was, was he was not very good at interacting with people in Congress to hash out the finer details of legislation. He preferred to give the speech and let Congress work out the details. Whereas Hillary Clinton, not because of her race, but just because of her temperament, is somebody who actually is very diligent about trying to listen to people, put people together. That's what was her reputation in the Senate, was someone who really tried to, uh, to kind of convene, bring people together, hear out the objections, and, and fashion deals. So I think that aspect of Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, her, her temperament or personality, could be effective in accomplishing some of these objectives. I'm not certain that not simply because, because she's the... a white woman that that would make a difference. Anyone else? Have a thought about that? 
I think there's something to that. I mean, in the, in the earlier panel, I had mentioned that it was Bill Clinton who took on welfare reform, right? Because it was the unexpected that a Democrat would do that. And frankly, our organization had a lot of problems with how he proceeded. But in some ways, he had more space to tackle that because he was a Democrat. Um, the same way that potentially George W. Bush could have done immigration if he hadn't waited so long because he was a Republican. So if, if you follow that argument, you could say being white might free your hand or be unexpected enough for you to move it forward. I do think that um, with President Obama, part of the, it was also an attempt to deflect an attack that was very much out there. That was a narrative that was being built that he would only be a president for African-Americans or for certain people that he was very cautious on how he approached those issues, at least in terms of the narrative around the steps that were taken. But if she did something counterintuitive, as Bill Clinton did with welfare reform, she would be on race and the cops. She would be doing something bad for black people, because his policy was bad for poor people, the welfare reform. And which is why the guys who are here at the Kennedy School, like David Elwood and others, had a tough time being there, and, and my good mm -hmm. friend Peter Edelman, Marin Wright's husband. In any case, so that would be bad, but if you mean by your question, would she then be somebody who would feel the pressure greatly to do something for African Americans because she's white and because she's a white woman? The answer to that is she probably would feel greater pressure because African Americans are more willing to say something to a white person who's in office than they are to Barack Obama. As I said, we just want him to be there and stay until, and don't die before, you know, whatever. But uh, she, what she would do, I don't know. But if she followed the pattern the Clintons followed before, right. which I'm very familiar with, and you probably are too, she would do a lot of social things, even more than the musicals that Barack Obama has. People would sleep in the Lincoln bedroom. Any big mouth preacher who's had a church of any size could sleep in the bedroom all night and come and stay, and people could come to this and come to that, and a real glad hand kind of approach, but you're express, not a policy. But approach. you're expressing an opportunity for, for change simply because of the, the more likelihood of accountability from the African-American community or might from not, other people of color community. Might not vote for you next time. Right. So yeah. do, you, do you expect that the African-American community or other people of color communities will, will hold a President Clinton if she were elected more accountable than they held a President Obama? I think they'll notice more what she does, and she will worry more, which is what the problem is, not what they do. She'll worry more that I got to keep these people, you know, some kind of way, and that's what the sleeping in the bedroom and so on, and coming to parties and stuff <laughs> is all about. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> there's another issue here that there's another explicitly political issue that comes up before we even get to the inauguration of the next president, which is the the lame duck session of Congress. Uh, after November 8th, we have until January 20th when there are a number of issues that could be resolved, everything from TPP to the Supreme Court nomination of Merrick Garland to immigration. Uh, there's a possibility there may be some sort of presidential directive or articulation on drone policy. Uh, a lot of these issues affect uh, social justice concerns or people of color. Uh, what pressure can people in our communities put on uh, whoever's the incoming president to focus on issues of our concern uh, or to focus on the, the current outgoing president, President Obama, and the Congress during this, interim, during this interim period from November 8th until January 20th? 
Well, I, I know, you know, you mentioned a number of them. I think, again, as I mentioned last night, Paul Ryan has a criminal justice reform bill that he's hoping to get out of the House during the lame duck session, whether it happens or not. Do you think that is a likelihood of happening? It's something he wants to do. Uh, in terms of the likelihood, I don't, I, ha I haven't studied the vote count, so I don't know, uh, I don't know, I can't, I can't place, place any odds on it, but that's something that's up there. I mean, the reality is that we are in completely uncharted territory, right? I mean, if you look at the lame duck in 2010, for example, it was incredibly productive. Um, you saw action on LGBTQ issues. You almost saw progress on immigration. And I mean, they worked almost all the way to Christmas, right? But this one, who knows? Um, some folks say, hey, if Clinton wins, that, you know, Republicans may want to confirm the Supreme Court justice before she puts somebody more liberal, since this is somebody who is a moderate, uh, who many of us have spoken highly of in the past, and they might want to get some of those things done before she comes in. You could make the same argument if Trump won, right? <laughs> that they would like to make progress on some issues before they have to face a completely uncertain uh, presidency. But it is, it, it's a crapshoot right, right now, really. Okay, one last question along this line of, line of thought, and that is this. Uh, moving forward, depending on who wins the election, whether it's Clinton or Trump, how differently do you see the strategy should be in terms of the civil rights community uh, in approaching President Trump or President Clinton? <clears throat> what should be the difference in the approach? <laughs> we obviously know there'd be different, can different people if elected. You know, I mean, with, with uh, a President Trump, policy in general is going to be totally chaotic because he himself is chaotic when he, in the way he approaches policy. He changes his, his, his mind. He goes on an interview with Chuck Todd and he says one thing. He goes on an interview with Jake Tapper, he says something else. And his policy advisor having to throw out the old papers and write new ones, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a total, it will, be, it will be a total mess. Thankfully, we're not going to have to deal with that most likely. But I, th I think with the, uh, President Clinton, uh, you know, I, I think, again, the opportunity is there on criminal justice reform because there is there are people on both sides uh, ideologically who are working on this issue. I think a, a federal strategy in terms of sentencing reform and other things is available. I would uh, also just say that as we were talking about earlier, a big part, of, as, we, as we all know, a big part of criminal justice reform is at the state and local level. And so there's certain things that a president and a Congress can do to, to move the ball down the field, but, but the energy really has to come at the state and local level. Anyone else with that? I'll just say, I, 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 have a, I, have, I find difficulty even going with the premise of the question. I, 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 you know, no, not, not to you, Keith, it's just that the notion of a Trump presidency is so noxious and, and unfathomable frankly, to me, uh, that I, I really have difficulty <coughs> engaging in, with it as a thought experiment, uh, <laughs> even hypothetically. Uh, and so, you know, my conviction is so certain that he cannot win this election, first of all, as an empirical matter. Uh, and, and well, let me ask you about that. What happens to your party then? You're a Republican, right? What happens to the Republican Party if there is a Trump presidency? I'm a, uh, yeah, I know it's a hard time to swallow. Getting but, harder every day. Right. Uh, or even if there isn't a Trump presidency, what happens to the Republican Party? Will there be yeah, another that's actually, autopsy? That's actually the better, that's question. better whether, question. Whether there is or isn't, whether, I mean, whether he wins or doesn't, and, yeah. and again, I think he will, won't lose. But I, frankly, I don't, I don't know how this can be anything other than, in a logical universe, this would be the end of the two-party system in America. Right. Uh, not just this general election with Trump, but the primary what we saw with Bernie. I mean, there's clearly a pent-up desire and, and, and demand on the left for more options, as we clearly saw in the primary. 
Uh, and and I think what we just clearly a pent up demand for it on the right as well. And so we are the only democracy. I think I mean, it was certainly the only Western liberal democracy like us of our peer nations in the world uh, that has this two party system. It, it had a good run, you know, two hundred plus years. Uh, but I, I, you know, I find it difficult seeing it. It appears to me that it's hobbling along at this point. It's like a wounded animal in the woods. And I don't and I don't see how it persists much longer with this loss of blood. Uh, you just can't save the patient, and you just got to let it go, die a merciful death as, to, as the two-party system. And we ought to have multi-parties. Every other every other sort of liberal democracy in the world, you look at the Europeans, they have a, you know, I've talked about the white nationalist part of, of the GOP. And every other Western liberal democracy in the world, just about, has a white identity polit party, political party, right? Swedes, French, the Germans, the Brits, right? There is a political party for those people who want to use their <coughs> politics and use the national government, you know, right? hair invoke democracy, right? As a vehicle for advancing white nationalist interests, right? Every other democracy in the world, just about, ha they have their own political party, right? I say give them their own here, right? And so you need multiple parties, and so you break up the two-party system and you have multiple parties and multiple, it would be a fringe, marginal party as it ought to be, which hopefully would help them to understand uh, that they're never going to be a majority. Uh, and, and you give this opening for all kinds of other coalitions of folks of better will to form. Two things to add to, to, to Charles' comments. You know, I, I think the real, the real interesting thing that's going to be interesting for all of us to observe over the next uh, year or so is what happens to the Republican Party after Trump goes down. Um, because there is a split emerging among conservatives who believe that conservatism has to be inclusive and has to be about making life better for all people, and, and those who believe it should be a vehicle for white identity politics and, and, and a kind of a white interest group. Um, and that split is, was there before, but the Trump uh, uh, nomination has really made it very clear who's on which side. You really, because you had to say, are you voting for, are you supporting Trump or not? There was a real cleavage. And I, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, the two-party system is going to continue in America, but I'm not clear that the two-party system we have today is going to be the two-party system in the future. You could easily imagine a situation where the Sanders crew and the Green Party, say, become the second party and the Democrats become the center-right party. That could happen. Uh, and then the, the white nationalists keep the Republican Party and, and that kind of fades away eventually. Uh, that could happen. You could have a number of other new parties could emerge that, that eclipse the old ones. But that split between uh, the white identity politics uh, Republicans and the inclusive libertarian conservative center-right uh, is, is, is emerging and is going to be more significant, not just because of Trump and the cleavages he's created, but it's a generational thing, too. One of my uh, columnists at Forbes, a guy named Chris Ladd, who I really love, I highly recommend to all of you, he wrote a great uh, a piece for us recently called The Jim Crow Generation. And he traces, he said, use a thought experiment. Imagine if you were born in the same year that Donald Trump was born, which is 1946, and you grew up white in America. You grew up in an America where all the police officers were white, all the politicians were white, all the people in authority were white, all the actors and actresses were white, all the television anchors were white, and white men, for the most part. And all of a sudden, you're in this completely unfamiliar world in the, in the 21st century. Right? And the younger generations did not have that experience. Younger generations, people like us, grew up in more integrated environments and, and certainly more diverse in a more diverse country. And I think the younger generations are passionate about fairness when it comes to uh, racial and ethnic equality of whatever ideological stripe than people who are older, who, who, for whom it's unfamiliar. And I think as the baby boomers die out, sorry to all the baby boomers in the room, um, I think we're going to have a much better, healthier 
uh, conversation and, and comedy about these issues, and I think the politics are going to be very different. We have, so, we, we, we'll take your, your two comments. We're going to take questions from the audience. Yeah. So, so the one thing I wanted to say is that you know, regardless of who wins, and they may not call it exactly grappling with racial tensions, racial and ethnic tensions, but there's got to be something in that space because the reality is that we are we are having we have to grapple with how do you govern effectively in an increasingly diverse society, particularly one where we are in the in the midst of the, the resulting environment of more than a decade of dog whistle politics that are designed to make people afraid of each other and divided from one another. You can't govern effectively if you, we don't figure out one way to tackle that. Maybe the tackling is going to be meek and tinkering around the edges, but some of that needs to happen. Obviously, who wins, it's going to make a difference. Um, I agree that it's hard to figure out where a Trump presidency is going to be in terms of policies because it varies from moment to moment. But the one thing that has not changed, um, speaking from the Latino community, again, 76% of whom are United States citizens, is that his platform has been predicated on questioning whether Latinos belong in the American family or not. And so that's very real, and, and it has been done in other ways with other communities, as we've talked before. So that's a very important piece. I think, generally speaking, um, we have to figure out what is our role in pushing that conversation to happen. Because part of what happened in 2012 was that there was one autopsy on why Romney won or lost and the need, and the need to be um, more inclusive, which I would welcome. And maybe naively I thought that 2016 would be the year when Republicans were giving Democrats a run for their money and competing for certainly Latinos and other communities of color. Because frankly, Democrats take these communities for granted and, you know, rely on, on Republicans doing their job for them. Uh, where it comes to Latinos, for example, Republicans are their own worst enemy and Democrats' best friend. But it was not to be this time around. What we have to guard against is allowing that post-election analysis to focus on, oh, it was all because we had a bad candidate and not the full-on rejection or cleaving or choice-making about now, maybe you had a bad candidate, but it was a bad candidate that ran on a platform that you've been fueling for over a decade, and you need to reject the platform as well. But I would argue that the autopsy from 2012 never really dealt with those policy issues. It was more about uh, uh, cosmetics than it was about substance. It never took hold. Immediately there was a push on saying it was because Romney wasn't conservative enough, and if he'd been conservative enough, it would have been different going after the missing voters who Trump now seems to be focused on. Well, except right? on immigration. Yeah. That was Ironically, the one exception was... in the autopsy. Everything else was political, but the, that, that autopsy made one, you go back and check it out, made one policy recommendation That's and it right. explicitly which, said which, the GOP needs to pass comprehensive immigration Which they reform. immediately rejected. Of course they rejected it. <laughs> but but, that, but yeah. that's what created the hostility to the autopsy. Is right. that the one policy recommendation was 
uh, immigration reform, which it didn't say exactly how to do it, but it said immigration. The RNC was very sensitive about not making policy recommendations. They thought that wasn't their job. Right. But the talk radio Fox News right saw that and said, see, the RNC elites have the secret plot to foist all the illegal immigrants upon us. That's terrible, and that kind of basically sunk the autopsy One report. One clear, quick clarification uh, on right that, away. though. Um, the, in, the, in the immediate 2012 aftermath, one of the interesting things, um, everybody involves and changed their mind and revises history also, but mm. even Hannity was calling for immigration reform, right? right? And let's not forget that that did lead to a bipartisan Senate bill. Again, not perfect, but it led to legislation in the Senate. The issue was... By the time you got to the House, that memory was cold and people were focusing, again, in a midterm election on when the crazy is what's most dominant in terms of narrative. I'm being told I have to begin the question and answer session now. Oh, that's right. Okay. That's right. We have to let you go. Yes. Thank you for reminding me. What was left out of the discussion about what's going to happen to the Republicans and what's going to happen to the parties and two-party system is actually what's going to happen to the Democrats. And the fact that all those people who are Trump supporters are not all solely motivated by race and ethnic views. A lot of them are motivated by their poverty and their joblessness and the technological obsolescence and everything else that has happened to them, and they don't know what to do. And we may not care about them, but we ought to. They're our fellow Americans, Mm -hmm. our fellow citizens. And if you're going to have social peace, you have to take everybody uh, into account for moral and social peace reasons. And in the Democratic Party, you have millions of disaffected people who supported Bernie because they didn't have anybody else's support, uh, supported somebody who have been the victims of technological obsolescence, has, have feel that the party has left them behind. There is no party of the working poor anymore. There's no party of the unions. They get, you know, they're disappearing and taken for granted. There's no party of the people who efficiency has left out, technological efficiency has left out. And there may be a coming together of these people, not around the issue, race is connected to economics, but not around specifically, do you hate Latinos or blacks or whatever it is, but in fact, a new alignment coming in that direction. But I, what I hear is a sort of writing off all the people who don't fit and we say we shouldn't write off people who don't look like us. We shouldn't write off people who don't think like us. The basket there of deplorables. Americans. Yeah, don't, 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 don't write them off. There are Americans like we are. And many does of that them, include racists yeah, and xenophobes? Who? Does that include racists and xenophobes? For example, Hillary Clinton, when, again, I shouldn't be speaking because it's time for the question and answer session. You so can't I'm going to so. stop this right now instead of asking another question. I'm going to let the audience speak. Uh, and so if you have a question, again, remember that you should end your question with a question mark. Uh, if you can, please identify yourself. Uh, and then I think we have people here with microphones, and we have a first question right over there. My name is Avian Bridgemoyne. I'm from Mattahunt. Um, it's a Mattahunt Elementary School in Mattapan. Um, just um, following up on some things that you said, um, capitalism requires inequality for it to work. Uh, you said that. And um, race is a social yeah. construct that was created uh, to cause inequality in our society so capitalism can work. Um, After um, the election, President Obama has said that he's going to try to pass the TPP. One of the reasons why he says it has to pass is because he can't help it that 
um, businesses primary way of making money is to make sure that they have cheap labor. Um, with the current presidency election going on where we've um, you know, showed the xenophobia that has come out you know, with um, Trump and um, what has happened with Bernie, what do you think is going to happen if we actually turn into a corporate democracy instead of being or capitalism republic? Anyone want to tackle that question? Well, what? I was the one who said that capitalism, I just meant that the definition of capitalism, as I understood it from Econ 101 years ago, was that you assume inequality because some people are going to have more and some are going to have less. It's just part of the definition. And we have a free enterprise economy in the United States under the Constitution. Yeah, that's why we have private property. And so we should expect there to be some inequality. So when people talk about there's never going to be any more inequality, that's not true. As long as we have capitalism, there will be inequality. The question is who's going to be up and who's going to be down and how many barriers are going to put it, be put in the way of people, whether it's race or some other gender or some other thing, and what are we going to do about it so that the ups and downs are fairer distributed. So that's uh, the thing that I was talking about. Uh, and the TPP, it is clear, and I was in Clinton, you know, I was running the Civil Rights Commission when Clinton was in, uh, and we had NAFTA, remember NAFTA? Mm -hmm. NAFTA and AFTA, we used to say. Uh, and people worked very hard to get that. It was a priority. And we were told that it was going to benefit American workers. Well, it benefited people buying cheap goods, but it didn't benefit uh, workers. I think that trade, it's a tough issue, trying to figure it out. Our main problem is if we really cared about poor people and we really cared about working class people who in fact are suffering, we would figure out what's next after every policy we engage in. We engage in policies and then when there's roadkill, we figure out, well maybe we should do something about that. What should we do about it? Like now when they tell us that when we get driverless cars, there will be driverless trucks, over-the-road trucks, and millions of workers who drive trucks will be put out of work, three and a half million workers. What are we going to do <laughs> about that other three and a half million? We are one-step thinkers. Uh, we don't move on policy. Let's hope that the next president will do, uh, Obama's tried, but let's hope that the next one whenever we want to do something, we can figure out how it's going to affect everybody and how can we minimize inequality, not how we can get rid of it. Okay, thank you. Question is over. Oh, we're back over here again. I thought I saw a question over here, but I'll come back to you next. Uh, hi, my name is Franklin Anias Sanchez, and uh, I go to a boarding school in uh, New Jersey. And I hear there's a lot of discussion about divisiveness amongst older generations, millennials, um, particularly. And I want to know if you have any advice for people the younger generation, like my generation, um, on, in regards to the ideas on like TPP, trade, and race going forward in the next elections ahead of us. Well, Can I? I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah. I want to ask you a question. Uh, I was at the Democratic Convention in, uh, where was it, in Philadelphia, and I noticed there were a lot of people protesting about TPP every time Bernie spoke or someone who was from his coalition spoke. Um, Tell me what it is about TPP that interests young people so much. I think that with regards to young people, it's a lot about what they don't know. Since uh, it's a pretty broad bill, and especially the, the prospect of having the, the private court that would uh, 
basically let larger corporations bully smaller countries into letting them benefit off of their resources. And for young people, I believe personally, especially it's around the fact that we don't really fully understand the aspects of the politics around it and the way that it really functions in the world. And for us, it's more of like, a well, we want this to happen, but we don't know how to really reach that. Uh, I think that was the main point about the TPP, about um, at the Democratic um, Convention, was that we were, we wanted somebody like Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton to show us that way to reach the prosperity amongst not necessarily TPP, but other trade bills. So I feel a moral disagreeing with Professor Bear on anything, but I'm going to have to disagree with her indictment of capitalism. Indictment? Ca- she indict- wasn't indicting. I, th- I think it was an indictment. I mean, so you, capitalism- you think that capitalism does not require inequality? Capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty does it? than No, but that was other- the question. Does it, does well, it require I, I, inequality? I will answer the question. Okay. Capitalism has uh, lifted more people out of poverty than any other system ever invented by humanity. Communism has and socialism have plenty of inequality. The inequality is simply transferred to the politically connected. I don't think he's making a comparison, the though. Well, no, but it does matter because if you're going to say capitalism is bad, then Did you I have say to say. Bad? Well, if you she believe inequality is bad, then you're saying capitalism. I, I didn't is bad. say I believe it. I think she, what she was saying reminds me of the Churchill quote that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Exactly. And I, I mean, I, I'm just curious as to the question of the inequality part. Do you agree or disagree with the idea that capitalism requires inequality? I think that capitalism regardless of any other system, capitalism has less inequality than any other economic system because it lifts more people out of poverty. There's more ability for entrepreneurs and, and people who are li- to lift themselves out of poverty through hard work, through enterprise. Um, and state-based systems, to, in which the government controls more of the economy, reward the politically connected over people who try to work hard and do things outside of the system. Uh, and again, it's not just inequality that matters. It Relative income matters. So. Uh, you know, uh, Winston Churchill used to say, socialism, uh, in, 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 there's inequality in capitalism, but in socialism, people are equally poor. That's not necessarily a good system. And the other thing we should also mention, by the way, is income isn't the only thing that matters. Cost of living matters, and this gets us to free trade. So uh, free trade, one of the things that free trade does is it lowers the costs of goods and services that we that. buy. Right, that. so, so that's, that affects... <laughs> Inequality, I right? Because if your if your income is low, I said that. Uh, that but I'm, I'm just I'm responding to the questioner, not to okay. you on this point. <laughs> uh, you know, free trade, free trade actually not only makes life better for people today because it makes their dollar go farther with uh, less expensive goods and services, but let's not forget that free trade is also incredibly beneficial to the people who are supplying us with those goods and services. If you're making a, a, a T-shirt in Vietnam and that's your source of sustenance and livelihood, we're actually helping those people uh, in those countries who are Let selling me, us If you're making this well. iPhone in China for pennies on the, an hour, you're helping those people too? So, Absolutely. Me, China has a middle class now of hundreds of millions of people oh, thanks to China so... entering the global economy. We have to note these gains and recognize them and, 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 and not just simply say, well, it's just so terrible that the people are actually lifting themselves out of but poverty. I, but I think this is, part of, this is part of where we get cut up or stuck, I yeah. would say, right? That every time that we have a discussion, we try to make it into a binary proposition. And the reality is that there's true to what you said, and it is absolutely true that capitalism requires a certain amount of inequality, right? I think that the, that the thing that has sort of broken down is that 
Americans were willing to accept that equation or believed in that equation that there would be some inequality because there was the promise of upward mobility. And that if you work hard and you did your job and you did what you were expected to, you would not always be stuck in the same position and your kids could do better and you could do so that that promise of upward mobility allowed people uh generally speaking to say okay i can put up with some inequality because there's that promise i think that what's exposed right now when we continue to see communities that don't have a way forward generation after generation and not only that that now we are seeing parents see their children not do better than they did, right? We already knew there were problems with upward mobility, but now it's exposed in a, in, a, in a more explicit way, the same way that the dog whistle politics has been exposed. So what we, where I see a great deal of commonality, say, between folks who responded to uh, part of the, the Trump message or to the Bernie message is communities that as disparate as may be and as other elements they may, they may be responding to, it's communities who, be, who feel they've been abandoned and left behind. Because it doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in power, the same people seem to continue to benefit. Now, I don't want to establish a false equivalence here. There's many differences, but that's the reality. Many communities are feeling that. And we have heard folks on both sides of the aisle dismiss that pain uh, dismiss that reality in lack of opportunity and blame people for their own condition. Whereas, yes, self-resilience is important and it's part of the American DNA, but that notion of if you work hard, you will have the opportunity, it's also kind of been challenged and the emperor has no clothes and that's what people are reacting to. Thank you. Uh, I see a question in the back here. So Keith, hopefully I could get to the question you wanted to ask at the end of the panel, but uh, some context for my question is we're seeing with um, working with uh, the deplorables that we kind of called it today, uh, coming from eight years of a, a president who is, is black, I've been working with a lot of students within higher education and a lot of the times the conversation comes down to uh, President Obama can't get anything done because he is a black president. Um, and so for me, I always see hopefully with, with Hillary Clinton in this election is that is there going to be anything being able to be done uh, with eight years or four years of a, a woman being president? As we've seen with, uh, as you kind of ask these, these xenophobes or misogynistic uh, types or even racist types that aren't just uh, voters, but as we've kind of seen with this election and campaign, uh, that they're actually also politicians using the same type of jargon. And so does that kind of affect and relate to, to policy? And how do we kind of work with those xenophobes, uh, racist, you know, those, those populations in terms of policy moving forward with uh, a woman president for the next four or eight years. Any it, answers? Yeah, if I could jump in on this. So most troubling, on, on the gender piece of your question, uh, most troubling, I think, those of you saw, I think it was today or yesterday, just this week, Trump supporters have broken out on Twitter with this hashtag, repeal the 19th Amendment, right? Uh, in response to maps that have come out from political scientists that if, if, if only women could vote, if only women had the vote, Hillary would win this election in a gigantic electoral college landslide, like 400 plus Right, electoral college votes to you know a double digit right for Trump, and the opposite is also true. Uh, that if only men could vote, uh, that that Trump would win. And so this is a this tells us something really deeply troubling, frankly. I think about the gender divide uh, politically in this country. Back to Dr. Barry's point, I, I think to yours with this whole concept of the deplorable, and to yours over here, I kind of want to get your, yours as well. 
uh, as the resident millennial on the panel. Uh, like you, I graduated, I'm a part of the recession generation. I graduated in the middle of this recession that came out of this housing crisis where jobs were scarce. Whether we're talking about deplorables or the context of this panel, African Americans or people of color generally or millennials like us, the, it's, we're always stuck in this uh, individual attribution frame for people's problems. And the, that was discussed in an earlier panel in context of criminal justice and the president's pardons of what did you do wrong, right? And those of us millennials who graduated in this recession generation have had this experience, right? There, you graduate and there are no jobs and, and, and parents and everyone in your life and, and all these news media talking heads. It's like, well, are you, are you out there hustling? Are you sending your resume out? Uh, do you follow up? Do you, send, do you send thank you notes after your interviews? All of this business. It's like, yeah, I did. And the 500 other people who applied for the job did that too. <laughs> And so the problem is the ratio of applicants to openings. Yeah, and so we never get to like the, the, uh, uh, these underlying structural issues. Uh, and to your point, whether we're talking about millennials or deplorables, to Dr. Barry's point about these issues of globalization and jobs going overseas, right? That next step after we pass the policy, especially with, with trade, of you know, we're displacing workers. Or in the case of, right, to your point about the overall openings of jobs, that's what I'll say on this. Nick Hanauer, the tech billionaire, wrote a great piece in Politico a little while ago about shareholder buybacks, right? Uh, and to this earlier conversation on the earlier question about you know binary choice, your point, which is so great point. There was a great book a couple years ago, Good Capitalism, Bad Capitalism, right? This isn't a binary choice, right? Perfect capitalism or perfect socialism, Marxism has never existed anywhere in the world at any time, right? All that has ever existed are mixed economies. Every economy is regulated. And so it's, whether it's, it's only a question of how much regulation and how you'll do it and so forth. Perfect capitalism has never existed anywhere. Neither is perfect socialism. It's all mixed economies. And so it becomes a question of good capitalism, bad capitalism, and how we uh, operate these trade-offs. And Nick Hanauer had this great piece about, for example, shareholder buybacks. Hillary's been talking about this on the campaign trail. We have a <coughs> tax code and regulatory policy that encourage, for example, uh, playing games with the numbers as a corporate culture, rather than investing in R&D, both for consumers mm -hmm. and investing in jobs, right? Investing in your existing employees and investing in expansion to create new jobs. And a great piece in The Economist about our general anti-competitive practices, such that you, we're crowding out new, uh, you know, smaller, scrappy, uh, 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 businesses entering into markets because you have big conglomerates, you know, your giant, you know, sort of corporations who we have basically monopolistic features, right? Uh, and that's an anti-job policy. Can I just so, quickly sorry. interject? And, and there's another question. There's lots of questions. I want to ask you a question while I'm taking the next question over here. Back in the back, the woman back here. Um, Charles, do you can still you still consider yourself a Republican? <laughs> I haven't heard you articulate one traditionally current Republican idea today. Um, well, many of these were before Donald Trump. <laughs> Notice he still hasn't said the word Republican. He's having trouble getting that. Getting that out of his Good afternoon. Um, my name's Zhang. I'm originally from Vietnam. I grew up in Ho Chi Minh City. And um, where I'm from is uh, we're familiar with uh, important export. And uh, I'm growing up through this transaction for all my life. And the country is pretty poor, but now it's going up because we do a lot of trading with England and European for 30 years. Uh, after the war, we um, try the best we can, but um, it's pretty hard for us. And then um, now we move to America and, um, because um, I have a question that um, because I watched the debate and they said, well, the German says, we cannot do with NAFTA, and we cannot do with TPP, and we need to make American great again. But from my experience and knowledge, I'm asking, is it a closed-door policies? Because you don't want to trade with anybody. You want to be 
or a superpower. But in this generation, people want to go breath. People don't want to stay at one place. So if one, one day your children growing up and then you cannot go anywhere, America is a big country and you don't know anything. But the sure. rest of the world, people trading every day. You don't know that a small country trading a million dollars with England. And right. Australia is a big country with submarine. So let me ask you, what, what exactly is your question you want to ask? Yes, the I'm asking the question that um, for the upcoming president, for, for Trump, so who who going to become the president? But because based on the last debate. So, so the, the, the question is basically, what will the next president do about the issue of trade, particularly with... Uh, not, yeah. not just with not just with Vietnam, with, with but with, all the country, oh, okay, not one countries. country, okay. because um, I understand. Yeah. I just want to give the uh, the panelists an opportunity to, to answer. But thank you for your your, your but honest, because uh, um, comment. Because I have because American is policeman for the rest of the world, and right. uh, this is definitely so. Uh, who going to become the president? So how can they? Uh, keep this position, okay. not policeman, but so, businessman as well. So the America has been perceived as sort of the policeman of the world, um, and trade issues we think of them differently here in this country than than in other countries where the, the people are affected by them most directly. So, who wants to sort of respond, Mary? You want to respond? Okay, to that? I uh, since I said something about trade before, and I've been to Vietnam. Uh, I was there during the war as a correspondent, and I was there uh, times since the war, so I'm very familiar with the situation uh, there uh, and a number of other places with which we trade in the, in the East. Uh, my point that I was making earlier about trade and about the plight of our working poor and unions and all that stuff I said, what I meant was when we make a policy, whether it's about trade or something else, we don't think about what's going to happen to the people mm -hmm. in this country and it is true whether we like it or not, but as Americans and our government, its first responsibility is to the people of the United States. I mean, that doesn't exclude responsibility to other people, but at least think about the people in the United States when you do something. And too often we've had policies where no one sat down to think through what's going to happen to people in the United States if we have a trade deal in this way or that way. Too often they say things like our, my good friend here, that it's going to help the people in that country. Yes, it may, may or may not. Uh, or that we ought to do it because it's the right thing to do and after all, you know, we should go where the cheap labor is. I'm saying American workers have to be taken into account in terms of what are we going to have them do Otherwise, we're sitting here with a lack of social peace, polarization, people who have to somehow be taken care of. That, that was my only plea, not that we should never trade with anybody. And I think the next president, which will probably be Clinton, will in fact follow that same policy because that's a policy we've had all the time and what she said sounds like that's her policy. Yeah, but there's a, sorry, there's a, there's a deep problem here too. I mean, I don't think the problem is necessarily trade. It's how well we do it. And under the reality is that all these trade agreements, they may be called free trade agreements. They're managed trade agreements, depending on who has more power to get the provisions that are going to benefit their industry or their sector. I mean, that's the reality, right? 
under the free trade agreement, the NAFTA, we had to fight like hell to get Congress to agree to a trade adjustment assistance program that would help displace workers in the U.S. and in Mexico, right, to manage the effects of it, going to your point about what happens to people. But what we're seeing right now, it's not unique in the sense that politicians are not going to engage in meaningful conversations with their constituents or the folks they are trying to engage. So then becoming, spousing the talking point of trade bad, I'm against it now, becomes the thing, right? As opposed to a real conversation about what does it need to look like? How do we need to engage in? And to me, one perfect example, this is true also in the area of immigration where we've had Democrats for decades, you know, feel that they either needed to say nothing or to be punitive on the issue. They're kind of evolving from there. Republicans right now are still feeling that you need to be punitive or negative on the issue. But if Senator Lindsey Graham won his primary for Senate in, in South Carolina, the most brutal, ruby primary in the nation, sticking to his guns and trying to like stand on, on conservative principles on why immigration reform made sense, you can't tell me that politicians can't have real conversation with their constituents. It's just that they don't do it. And we sometimes as voters also don't welcome that or demand that. Well, I'll make, I want to make one quick point about this that draws back to the topic of our conference. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that Donald Trump just has no coherent view of policy or politics. And I, I would argue that that's not the case at all, that, that his view is actually very coherent. And, and this is how I would draw it. He's a nativist across all spheres of policy, right? So he's against... Uh, foreigners competing with Americans for labor, i.e. immigration. He's against foreigners competing with America for goods and services, i.e. free trade. He's against American involvement in foreign policy, broadly speaking. He wants to say, you know what, I'm going to let the whole world go to, go to hell and do my own thing. I'm not going to be involved in foreign wars. I'm not going to be involved in anything else. He's effectively, in a sense, a kind of foreign policy nativist. Uh, every single one of his policies is about looking inward and being afraid of engaging with other countries, particularly non-European countries. Um, and, and that's, the, I, I understand that there are very legitimate, you know, policy, we can have a legitimate policy debate about whether free trade is good or bad or how to make free trade agreements work for uh, workers in America. But it's important to understand that there is a strain of the anti-free trade movement that is about nativism and, and not about a, an economic, a real economic critique. Yes, right here. The Obama policy on uh, uh, Medicare is critical because all, almost all the red states have refused the expansion of Medicaid. Medicaid, okay. And with all the votes that took place in Congress, they actually took place on the ground around the country in those red states. The reorganization, and this is the question I really have, the reorganization that's necessary on a political level has to do with exactly that, including everybody and not letting uh, these policies against poor people go forward. Okay. Um, I know, Charles, last night, I think we were talking about Medicaid expansion in Kentucky. 
Were we not talking about that? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to tackle that real quickly? Yeah, it's real. I, and you're I, from I, Kentucky, right? Well, I went to school in Kentucky. I, spent, mm -hmm. I, I used to live there. I spent some time in Kentucky. Um, the, the part of your question that I'll pick off and, and just say is that there have been, and, and to Keith, Keith's point about me being insufficiently defensive of my party today, I, 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 will, I will point to you in the direction of a few Republican governors. Oddly enough, whatever you think of the man, I, I'm pretty sure Pence was one of them. Ovi can speak more because he's much more the policy wonk than I am. I think my own state governor uh, in Tennessee, uh, Bill Haslam, has done something similar. They're trying to do these little ha these uh, hybrid things uh, with the ACA. You know, they're changing the eligibility standards and asking folks to kick in a little bit more in terms of premiums and so forth and these kinds of things. And so uh, I, I believe Pence was one. I was maybe no better. I think Haslam. Maybe. So there are a handful. I think a small handful of Republican governors who have uh, done these expansions and implementations by requesting certain waivers from DHS to do it in their own way uh, and to kind of change some of the rules and sort of not do it in exactly the way that ACA contemplates, uh, but try to do it in a quote-unquote conservative uh, way around eligibility and, and asking people to pay a little bit more to the system and so forth and so on. That, that's the closest some Republicans have come, come to. I have something to say about this, and I said something about it this morning. The only one of those red states in the South where the poorest people live that has now taken Medicaid expansion is Louisiana, and that was because Governor Mr. Vitter had a big sex scandal who was running for governor, the Republican, and he lost to the Democrat, and the Democrat governor got in, it was just a quirk, and he has accepted Medicaid in Louisiana. But the point I want to make is that ask yourself why there was such a big hole in the language in Obamacare that left space, I put it this morning like a truck could drive through it, for the Supreme Court to decide that the Congress, that the states could make up their own minds about this even though there's money involved and usually it's money on the stump and you take it and you run. But the reason why I'm told by the guys who negotiated Obamacare, who told me this, they may be lying, people like to lie about things that they did or didn't do, was that they didn't want to negotiate with the Republicans in Congress and didn't want to talk to them and didn't want them to see what they were doing and they didn't want the staff for the Democrats to read what they were doing because then they might tell somebody what they were doing. So they were happy to just pass it as it was and figure out we'll get the holes taken care of later. So it was a classic example. There wasn't one Republican vote for it, as you probably recall. It was a classic example of something that led to just more. It's a good thing. I like Obamacare, and I like people getting health insurance. But it's another example of something that led to more polarization and more problems, really, for some of the poor people who are left out. All right, we have time for one last question. I see two people who have had their hands up all day, but I can only call one of them, so I'm <laughs> sorry. But I know you were the first one to put your hand up who so didn't get a chance. Hi, uh, my name is June. I'm a medical student. I'm also a student at the uh, School of Public Health here. I'm with five other students from the Public Health School. And I, and I say this to everyone not to offend, but just to inform. The lunch that we enjoyed today was actually um, made from the replacement workers of Harvard University Dining Services. And they're a replacement because they're workers right now who are, they're actually outside this building fighting uh, on strike for a living wage. And these, these people are often people of color, um, people who in public health school we label under low socioeconomic status. And so all this to say I want to ask, as uh, future leaders or as leaders right now, how do you reconcile this irony of 
of fighting for civil justice, um, policy advocacy, and having to be complicit on a personal level. And perhaps there wouldn't be an irony if there was no binary or dichotomy, but just I just want to hear from you how to reconcile this difference. How do you justify yourselves? <laughs> well, you know, I, I will say that um, this, this, there, there, are numerous, there are numerous examples of institutions like Harvard uh, that because they can call themselves nonprofit, uh, they use that as a shield to engage in all sorts of incredibly self-aggrandizing uh, and greedy behavior. It's true of nonprofit hospitals. It's true of nonprofit universities. Uh, there's this entire economy of nonprofit institutions that take advantage of their tax-exempt status to do things that if it was a, a for-profit, publicly traded corporation that was doing it, we'd be totally up in arms about it. The NCAA? Uh, the NCAA is like another great NFL. example. Absolutely. So there, there are, I think one broad, this is not obviously outside the scope of our, of our discussion today, but I, I would love for, for, for the, the Kennedy School to, to put some thought into that, how nonprofit institutions uh, are not always living up to their, their moral obligations. Charles? I, I don't know why you called on me. <laughs> okay. Uh, at, the, at the expense of being the this devil. This is your last opportunity to speak before oh, we finish. Oh, well, I, I'll just say I, I am quite, I guess as a political practitioner, I'm quite fond of a, a certain James Carville quote, never make the perfect the enemy of the good. And so, uh, you know, my, my own view is uh, Thomas Sowell, who I love quite a lot, says, you know, there are no solutions in life, there are only trade-offs. All we ever do day-to-day is to make a series of trade-offs. I'm not in the habit of making trade-offs. <laughs> and so uh, I didn't know they were outside. Uh, and I didn't know that the people who made the lunches were doing that as substitutes. Uh, had I known that, one, I wouldn't have eaten a lunch. And two, I might have gone out to find out why they were protesting. I love protesters. Uh, and to see if there was something I'd like to protest uh, along with them. So I didn't know it. I had no information. I'm a low information person. Okay. Yes. We, we don't have a chance to follow up, unfortunately. So I, so. I like to build on that question uh, because I think it's important to, again, a lot of times we go towards something so specific that we could miss the bigger point and the bigger responsibility. Um, I do agree that everybody makes trade-offs every day. I think that that question you pose is a question that it's important for each and every one of us to grapple with every single day. Um, certainly it's a question for us to reflect on, but it's a question for you and for everybody here. And it is a question at so many different levels. How are we complicit in that situation? But how are we complicit in the broader situation that we've been talking about here all day? And what are we going to do about it? I, I am privileged, different from my parents, to have a job where I work on civil rights and social justice issues uh, that was different from what my parents got to do and frankly from what my first job in the U.S. was in the garment district ironing, uh, which definitely drove home my mom and dad's advice of stay in school. Uh, but I want to build on that point because I think that's where I would like us to what I would like us to think about. Um, you know, I used to think of myself as a pessimist, and I, now I revise that and think maybe I'm just a skeptical optimist. And a young lady was saying earlier, of course, because if you didn't have some optimism, you wouldn't be able to keep fighting for these things, right? So I think that grappling with that question is also about what is our role as a civil society in reweaving 
in our strengthening an accurate and actionable story of who we are, a story of us and who we are as a country that reflects what the country really is. Not the doom and gloom that some folks are selling to try to scare us away from each other and play it for political advantage. Not glossing over the things that we need to fix, but a way, a, a story where we allow, if not all, at least a majority of Americans to be able to see themselves, whether they are white, Latino, African-American, Asian, Native mm. American. And I think bringing it back to the Kennedy School, what I would say is I was here a while back, but I do remember crisply um, that in the fondness of doing case study to analyze different problems, at least to me, it was incredibly apparent in almost every single case study that there were also elements of race and ethnicity and the disempowerment or in the crisis that was part of that case study. And it was never dealt with. It was always handled as a management challenge or as a business challenge without addressing those issues. So bringing it home, what I would say in terms of the steps that we can each take big and small, depending on our sphere is, is that for the Kennedy School, as it seeks to prepare the future generations of people who are gonna be in public service, that one of the biggest challenges facing us as a country is how do we govern effectively in light of an increasingly diverse nation? And so let's not obscure those things and let's make sure that those topics, those approaches, and those attempts at our solutions are infused in every single class and not in special pan panels on su in summit, but as part of every class and the challenges that we deal with in those contexts. And with that charge, we will end this discussion. And thank you very much to the panelists for your presentations and thoughts. And I'll reintroduce Leah Wright-Rigor.